and thank you for listening. I'm Jay Lemons. Welcome to Leaders on Leadership, brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. The purpose of our podcast is to share the stories of the people and forces that have shaped leaders in higher education and to learn more about their thoughts on leadership in the academy. Delighted today to be joined by Javier Savallos. Javier is the president of Framingham State University in Massachusetts, a post he's held since 2014. Prior to that, he served for 12 years as president of Kutztown University in Pennsylvania after a lengthy tenure in academic and administrative roles at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Javier was born in Ecuador and moved to Puerto Rico as a teenager. Earned his bachelor's degree at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez, and then moved to Illinois where he earned his master's and doctoral degrees from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Javier has provided leadership both within higher education and in his local communities, serving on the boards of the American Association of State Colleges and Universities, ASCU, the NCAA Division III Presidents Council, the United Way of Tri-County and Metro West Chamber of Commerce, among many, many others. Earlier this year, Javier announced that he will retire at the end of the academic year. It's been my Personal happy pleasure to call Javier a friend for nearly 20 years. We became colleagues in our service on the board of Pennsylvania Campus Compact, a great organization that brought together presidents from public and private two and four year institutions, all dedicated to civic engagement. Javier and his wonderful wife, Jose, are proud parents of two outstanding young adult children. A year or so ago, Javier got to experience the joy of watching his son be awarded his doctoral hood. Javier is in the middle of a rare family that has three consecutive generations of PhDs. Javier, welcome and thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Jay. Well, I really do appreciate you and, and, uh, and your friendship and, um, and I'm anxious for our listeners to have a chance to, uh, to draw on your experiences and your wisdom. And you know, you've led an ASCU institution for nearly 20 years now. You've served on the board of ASCU. And I think I'd like to start there. Um, you've been the chair of ASCU. Share with our listeners, if you will, what it means to be an ASCU institution. What makes these 400 or so institutions such an important part of the landscape in American higher education and how they bring value to students and the communities in which they exist? That's a great question. And ASCU institutions are the comprehensive regional institutions sponsored by the state. So we are public universities, which means that we have a mission to, to really reflect and respond to the needs of our states and our communities. Most of us started as teacher colleges at some point, and we have a long, long tradition of educating teachers. And we still today uh, educate about 60% of all the teachers in the United States come out of asking institutions. Over the next uh, few years, and we will continue to, to fulfill that mission. And also we will continue to diversify our bodies of our student body as uh, we reflect our communities. In my case in Framingham, for example, over the last seven years, we have gone from about 16% of students of color to almost 40% of students, wow. which reflects the reality of our work as public comprehensive universities. I'd like to summarize our mission in just one brief sentence that said that as institutions, what we do is that we create the middle class. 
uh, about typically 40 to 60% of students at ASCII institutions receive Pell Grants. Uh, the same number are first generation students going, going to college for the first ones in the families. And so, you know, that is the, the most important thing that we do is offer opportunities and offer access to a wide variety of individuals. And again, as we continue to, to move forward over the next few years, we will be serving more non-traditional students because that is the, the, the population that is coming to our schools now. So we'll just continue to reflect the needs of our communities and we are integral parts of our, of our communities. Another thing that we do in many areas is that because we are in all parts of states, uh, we many times are the largest employer in a specific community. And again, we are fulfilling a, a different function or a different role by providing uh, economic opportunities to the community at large. Uh, absolutely, uh, critical anchor institutions in so many communities. And, and, and interestingly, um, uh, important both in urban and rural um, uh, uh, places across the country. Um, no question that ASCU institutions are critical economic engines. Absolutely, and I've, I've been in, uh, in both a rural institution when I was in Kutztown, although it's deceivingly rural because it was in between Reading and Allentown, but you know, it, the, the town itself was very small. And now I am in a city in Framingham, which is of course part of the greatest Boston uh, area and Framingham itself has about 85,000 people. So it is a, you know, a, a mid-sized city. So it's, yeah. it's different. And yet, even in that large place like Framingham, we play a, a crucial role in the community. We are the educational institution that serves the needs of our area and our region. Fabulous. Well, one of our goals for the program is to ask leaders to reflect on their own pathways to leadership with the hope that some of your own story um, will inspire others. I'd love it if you would share with our guests, our listeners, um, um, if you talk about some of the people, the events or opportunities that forge the person that you are and the leader you have become in this journey that uh, has unfolded over these decades. Sure, uh, I, my path has not been the most traditional path that uh, people would follow to, to reach a presidency or any other position of leadership in the campus, but it's, it is interesting. I was a typical faculty member working in a fairly esoteric field. I was working in colonial Latin American studies. So basically uh, working in texts from the colonial times, uh, both in prose and in poetry. So I always joke that the thing that you need the most to be a 21st century college president is to read 17th century colonial Latin American poetry, you know? <laughs> so after I was uh, promoted uh, to full professor at UMass, uh, on one of those things that, you know, I was not even thinking about, I decided to put my name in to run for being the secretary of the faculty senate at UMass Amherst. And the secretary of the senate is the, actually the chair of the senate in UMass, it's just that, you know, the, the title secretary. So that put me in, in touch with administration in a, in a way that uh, I hadn't experienced before. I was, uh, you know, meeting with them on a regular basis with the provost, with the, with the chancellor. I had an office, I was running that, and I, it was kind of an interesting experience. I, in my second year in that position, we had a leadership change in the institution. The chancellor left, we had a search committee, we had a new chancellor, and we hired uh, David Scott, who is one of my mentors in, in, in my career. David came in and, you know, he did something that, again, I learned from him not to do the same thing. He, uh, one afternoon, uh, fired three vice chancellors in about 15 minutes, you know, on a Friday afternoon. So, and there were people that had been there for a long time. So there was a lot of angst in the campus about that. 
So that put me in a, in a really interesting position. I was the official speaker for the faculty in my role as secretary of the faculty senate. So we approached uh, David, you know, with a, with an idea of having some internal uh, searches for the interim positions to validate those searches instead of just appointing people to interim places so that the campus would feel some ownership. He agreed. And then, you know, all of a sudden I found myself being one or two finalists for interim provost, which of course I had absolutely zero experience. I would, I would have been a total disaster. Fortunately for me, he was smart enough not to appoint me. He appointed Pat Crossan, who is another one of my mentors, somebody who I also respect tremendously. She, uh, she called me and asked me if I was interested to join her office. And initially she said, just like faculty advisor to the provost with no line responsibility. Well, we know that in administration, once you get in, things will happen. So the non-line responsibility became a line responsibility very soon. And then I was in charge of advising and, you know, and the counseling center, et cetera, a few of those things. And I discovered that I actually liked you know, being part of a, of administration. So uh, talking to both Pat and, and David Scott and Marcy Williams, who was the deputy chancellor, I applied for an ACE fellowship and I was elected to be an ACE fellow. So I, I went on a fellowship for a year and that, that truly uh, convinced me that I had a calling to, to move into administration. So I came back to UMass after my, my year as a, as a fellow. Where were you at? Who did you work? Oh, I, was, I did my work at Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And I did that intentionally because I have been all my life in the public sector. And I thought that it was interesting to experience uh, the private sector, especially a fairly wealthy private institution like, like Wesleyan. Yeah. And certainly it was a very different experience. I mean, there was, I have wonderful anecdotes of uh, my, my year at Wesleyan has so many different ways of doing things. It was a great learning experience. Who was your mentor there? Uh, Doug Bennett, who was the president at the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Doug was my, my mentor at Wesleyan. So that was, it was great. When, when I came back, my department chair left and took a position in California. So, of course, now I was the administrator. And you know that department chairs are not exactly a, a highly contested position. So <laughs> kind of said, you are the administrator. So I took on the position of department chair. And uh, I had been doing that for like six months when the vice chancellor for student affairs left. And the chancellor called me and said, you know, Javier, would you be willing to do this for six months where we organize a search and whatever? And he said, David, I know nothing about student affairs. I honestly, you know, that's not my, my feeling. I said, oh, no, no, you, you can do it. You will be fine. And, you know, I, again, on, on a leap of faith, I said, I'll take this position. Well, the six months interim position turned out to be a four-year permanent position because, you know, one crisis after the next happened. And it was like, you know, we had building takeovers. We have uh, all sorts of things. UMass is a very activist school. So the student body was quite active. And, you know, so I, I didn't have time to think much about it. So four years later, I had the opportunity of uh, being uh, recruited by Kutztown University to be president of Kutztown. So as I said, my path is not traditional at all. The typical path of a department chair, dean, provost, president. I always joke that if I follow that path, I would be applying for my first presidency now instead of being you know, in my 20 years as a college president. So I, I guess that you know taking chances sometimes uh, pays off, and that's uh, that's what I did when I followed this kind of a uneven but interesting path. <laughs>
I love that story. And I think you're right. The nonlinear, um, uh, you know, um, uh, emergence of, uh, of a sense of call came for you um, by, um, you know, putting yourself forward to be the secretary of the faculty. Wow. I, I know. And that was, that was a very strange uh, decision. I mean, it was kind of on a whim. I just, uh, I, I had been in committees of the Senate, but I had never been elected to the Senate itself. So I had never been a senator. And I always joke that I won because nobody knew me and everybody knew my opponent. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, we became good friends, as a matter of fact, after that. <laughs> it was, it's a good line. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Javier, tell us what, in your mind, makes a good leader. And, and by good, I don't mean grade B. I mean virtuous and effective and successful. I, I think that there's two, two words that I, that I think that are really important for leadership. Uh, one is humility, being humble. And the other one is honesty. And humility, because I think that we recognize that we serve. As, as you know, you have been a college president for so many years. You know that it is not a role that, that we take to, to get prestige and honor. We take it to serve our students, to serve our community. Uh, again, I like to, to joke when I talk to, uh, to people at different uh, things like the Academic Leadership Institute, they say it is not a crown, it is a job. And it is a job that you have to, to be respectful of and, and, and humble of having the opportunity every morning to get up knowing that you can make a difference. And the other one is honesty. I mean, you have to be honest and you have to be transparent with everything you do in the, with the campus community. And, uh, you know, to be successful as a president, you, you cannot uh, play two or three games at a time. You have to tell the campus what the reality is, even when it is bad news. And I had a lot of bad news when I was in Pennsylvania because of budget cuts. We had significant budget issues. And I always tried to be absolutely honest with the campus about everything. It was not happily received, but it was received. <laughs> People knew that I was not trying to cover the truth for them. And I think that in my mind, those two words, uh, those two H's, you know, are the, the most important things that a, that a leader should have uh, to be successful in, in higher education. I love that and I appreciate it. And, and that is the person that I know and recognize in you. Um, and I know it's what has led you to have the impact you've had over these 20 years. So thank you for, for sharing that. Um, and yeah. I, I also love, um, it, you know, it's not a crown. Um, it is not a crown, that is for darn sure. Well, you know, when you create a, a team, I'm also a big believer that it, this is not an individual sport or a solo act. Um, it's, it's um, you know, I, you know the, the, that administrative set of colleagues you rely on, what do you look for in, in those leaders? Well, I actually have to look for the, first of all, the skill set that they have to have. I mean, my CFO has to know much more about business than I do. My provost has to know much more about academic affairs than I do. My vice president for student affairs has to be much more engaged and know a lot more about the student affairs world than I do. Otherwise, you know, why would I be having them? So first of the thing that I look is, of course, that, uh, that level of skill and that level of, uh, of knowledge. And of course, you have to have the same qualities of people willing to serve the community, integrity, and the, the willingness to really put the best intentions of the institution first. The institution comes first, the students come first, uh, everything else comes second. And you know, working with students is the most important thing. We are, what we try to be a student-centered institution. And that means that you know, everything that we do 
has to really reflect uh, in the well-being of our students and of course our faculty and staff. So one thing that I learned, uh, you know, from David when you know when he made the changes in administration is that you have to be careful about how you change your team. Uh, yes, every new president has the, the right to have the her or, her or his own team in place. But, you know, sometimes you better understand the campus culture first, understand the campus uh, atmosphere, and also understand the, the, the qualities, the strengths, and weaknesses that each of the leaders have. So in both institutions, um, I did not proceed to make immediate changes in my leadership team. However, over the course of a, of a, of a handful of years, yes, the teams were basically totally different. I think that, you know, that's uh, one thing that, that you do slowly is that, uh, you know, just working with people and in, in, some pace, in some cases, some individuals decide to move on to a different position, other individuals retire, other individuals decide to go back to doing something else. And then you, you change your, your team. And then you obviously try to hire people that, that fit that culture that you're trying to create in, the, in, in, your, in your office, in your team. And I've been very fortunate to have amazing teams of people that, uh, that work for that work with me and you know with, and again i i think that the operating word is not work for me work with me because we all work together to make this a better institution and, and i think that you know we we try to uh, to foster that that culture and you know obviously we want to have disagreements when we get together at cabinet to talk about things we all have to to present our own point of view and in the end we all agree and i think that i've been again fortunate in these 20 years i've never had anyone in my in my team after having a, a disagreement in the office about how to proceed in some area going out and undermining anybody else we have all understood that we are a team and i think that that is a very important part of uh, who we hired and how we work together I, well i really you're you're anticipating and really teasing into my next question by your last couple of answers in terms of um humility and honesty and 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 i think i I heard a, a, a powerful case for um, patience and getting to know a place. Um, for those of our listeners, and I think about our AALI participants as a, as a core part of that body, what's your advice for new leaders or those who aspire to leadership? Well, I think that, you know, the first thing is uh, be willing to listen. Uh, and it is a learning, learning experience. You have to, to learn from uh, from the campus that you have to learn from other people and you have to learn from uh, from your, your peers at different uh, different institutions one of the great things that uh, ask you those uh, for me and the CIC did for uh, for the private those for the private institutions is to bring presidents together for our retreats our annual meetings you get to know a lot of people you get to meet a lot of people and you get to learn from a lot of people uh, as we all know you know being a college president is kind of a lonely uh, job on campus i mean you you do develop friendships and connections with people on campus but in the end uh, you know you sometimes have to make decisions that might not be popular so you you want to keep certain distance however having asked your colleagues or cic colleagues uh, you know that you can pick up the phone and call and say listen i'm facing this thing on campus what would you suggest that is an absolutely great thing to do so developing a network is very important and participating in programs like I did at ACE or MLI or AALI or any of the wonderful leadership programs that we have in this nation, uh, th that network of fellows or, or cohort that you are part of, I want to be friends for life. I mean, so you, you have a great opportunities to develop those, those friendships. Uh, 
meeting with your peers and taking advantage of that. And once you get promoted to a different campus as a provost, as a president, listening to the campus, having opening se open sessions to talk to people, to meet with people, to get people an opportunity to get to know you as well, because it goes both ways. You got to develop that trust in, in, with the campus and the campus has to trust you. So it, it, you have to, to work on it to make sure that people uh, participate and have a, that they feel that you pay attention to what they say, that they feel heard and that, and that you do uh, incorporate the comments and the, the suggestions whenever possible in, in your actions. Yeah, absolutely. When you think about the days that we're living through, what are the most critical challenges facing leaders today? Well, obviously, you know, we're coming out of the pandemic. That is uh, probably the biggest challenge that any one of us has faced and we never anticipated uh, that, that. I mean, I, I remember in 2014 preparing for the potential pandemic and the worst possible case scenario was that we were going to be closed for a month and so and then all of a sudden we have been closed for 18 months or so. and it, it, it certainly has been a, a huge thing. However, like any other thing, it has opened the door to new opportunities and to new ways of doing things. Uh, you know, Zoom has become, uh, Zoom or the other platforms, all, you know, Google Meet and Teams and whatever, all these uh, remote platforms have become really useful and we realize that we can do a lot of things through these kind of platforms that could be much more effective. Um, case in point, our campus governance structure. We typically meet in our governance committees on campus in person in the afternoon. And you know that interferes with the uh, schedules with classes, interferes with schedules with family issues, interferes with a number of things. Now it's a lot easier for faculty and, and, and staff people to just join in Zoom at two o'clock and they are done at three o'clock and they can just turn the Zoom off and go to whatever they are doing. So there is a lot of things that are gonna change. And that is an advantage. At the same time, it's a great challenge. And you know, hybrid models of education are gonna be totally different over the next five years. I think that over the next five years, uh, it's gonna be a steep learning curve for uh, college presidents in particular to deal with all these technological uh, uh, initiatives and all these technological opportunities that, that we have right now. Uh, you know, I, I, I joke about uh, the fact that I have been buying technology for faculty for the last 20 years, but I have no clue how to use Canvas or how to use Blackboard. I mean, I've never had to do that. Yeah. The, we are going to be having to move into a lot of those things to just manage the institution. It's going to be a learning opportunity for college presidents because a lot of things are going to be happening. We are doing a, a, a lot of work right now through uh, Google Documents, for example. That is something that I would have never thought before, that you can just go to the central place and edit a document back and forth and, you know, and, and work together in that, in that sense. So that is going to be different. Uh, dealing with students that have gone through the pandemic as sophomores, juniors, seniors in high school, feeling that they have uh, lost a couple of years of their lives, uh, you know, in, in terms of uh, the experience, uh, having right now, we have what I call two first year entering classes, this, the sophomores and the, and the first year students. The sophomores were not on campus last year. So yeah. we have to do two orientations. We have to do two kinds of things. So again, that is gonna be something that, that is gonna be an interesting challenge uh, for the you know, for, for administration, how to deal with students in the post-pandemic world. And of course, you know, as, as technology continues to evolve, and students become much more connected and wired to the telephones and whatever, you know, how are we going to leverage 
that technology to really communicate. Because one of the challenges that we have right now is that how do we communicate in the age of communication? Because young people right now, they don't read email. Facebook is for people like me. It's for all people. It's not for the young ones. They get into platforms that change and evolve constantly. And, you know, today is TikTok. Tomorrow will be who knows what. And just keep developing that. And they don't sign in. You know, we have a text message thing that we we send to the campus for emergencies or for whatever. But it's an opt-in. We cannot force them to give us the cell phone numbers. So how do we really reach to students in the age of communications? I mean, we do everything we can through Twitter, to Facebook, to the website, to messaging, et cetera. But if they don't check and if they don't look, you know, it's, it's going to be a challenge. And so that's going to be a, one of the things that I think that would be interesting for the next uh, generation of uh, university leadership to, to work with. No question. Um, and uh, wow. I mean, what, what you and other leaders have lived through um, has been an extraordinary test, um, unlike anything in our lifetimes, um, uh, as you said. Uh, yeah, remember preparing for, for the, the swine flu and um, the event of, uh, of being out a month. Um, uh, mm-hmm. This was something yep. different. Uh, hey, we're going to move into the lightning round a little bit, where I'm going to ask you shorter questions, um, uh, and you're welcome to answer whatever length you want. So here we go. Mm-hmm. Who's had the most influence on you? Oh, I think my, my parents. I think my parents have had a, a lot of influence on me. They were both college professors. And uh, as a matter of fact, my mother was the first woman to be a college professor in Ecuador. So that was uh, you know, something I'm very proud of. And of course, they, they had a big, the great courage to move to Puerto Rico when, you know, as you mentioned, I was a teenager. Because we, we are five siblings in my family, and they wanted all of us to have the opportunity to get a really great education. And they knew that sending us out from Ecuador was going to be impossible. So they moved to Puerto Rico so we could do our undergraduate there, which we all did. And then we all came to graduate school in the United States, which again, it was a great thing. So they sacrificed themselves. Moving and migrating is not an easy thing. You leave all your family, your friends, your social network, your life behind. So I, I have a great uh, respect and admiration for my parents for doing what they did for us. Do you still have your parents? No, unfortunately, they, they are both uh, gone, but uh, you know, they, they live in our memory. Yeah, I did not know they were both professors. Um, uh, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a phenomenal legacy. So you, you stayed in the family business. I did, I'm the only one in the family business. My, my siblings are all in the in the sciences and working in the you know working in corporations or in the you know in other world. But. <laughs> Fabulous. Uh, is there a book that's had greater impact and influence on you than any other? Yes, Don Quixote. <laughs> I I read Don Quixote almost every year, and uh, that comes from a background in literature, of course, that I certainly. Huh? Appreciate the fact that it is the first modern novel and that created the, the genre of, uh, of the novel, or the novel. But the character of Don Quixote himself, that is this idealistic, crazy man that is willing to sacrifice himself uh, physically because he's constantly being beaten down yeah. because of this ideal that he has about you know making this a better world. In a way, that's what we do in education. In a way, that's what uh, what we do as college presidents. Try to, of course, not sacrifice ourselves being beaten, but you know. 
<laughs> ourselves uh, for the greater good. And, you know, I think that we are all in, in a way idealistic and Don Quixote is the, the greatest ideal that, that we can think about. Love it. Love it. Do you have a fondest memory of your undergraduate years? Yes, I was, as I say, I was very lucky to, uh, to go to do my undergraduate work at the University of Puerto Rico in, in Maya West, which is uh, in the west part of the island. And, uh, you know, we had a, a, a number of absolutely great, great professors. It's an ask institution as, as, uh, as yep. we are, although it's also the, the land grant and the sea grant institution of the, of the system in Puerto Rico. So it had a lot of research as well. So I had the opportunity of uh, really experiencing both uh, the ask you quality and the research quality of being an APRU and ASCU institution. But my fondest memory is not related to academia at all. It's related to what happened on Friday mornings in the, in the in this, in, there was this big building called the General Studies Building. They had like a lobby outside. And of course, it's always warm. Puerto Rico is always nice. And people would bring guitars and instruments. And Friday mornings, there was always music. And it was great to just uh, sit there and enjoy amazing, amazing musicians that, that were just performing. And some of those musicians actually became uh, well-known and they just emerged as, uh, as real performing artists in Puerto Rico. So it was, it was great to just have that uh, informal cultural atmosphere that uh, I remember really fondly, you know, just uh, looking forward to Friday mornings to just listen to the music. That's, that's, that's fabulous. Um, uh, was it a residential institution? And no, it was not a residential institution. I mean, so, it's a very small. The place of those Friday events was really even greater in terms of impact on the culture. I, I suspect. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it had a, it had a, a very small uh, residence hall, very small. So it, it was a handful of students that live on campus. But most of the students lived in houses around the the, the whole community was organized, you know, to rent rooms to students and to have that. So that was part of the economic impact of the university. Yeah. So. Yeah. So this was, you know, it was not, uh, it was not in the residence halls. It was just in the, in the main building, the main academic building of, uh, of the campus, the general studies building. I, I, I love it. Um, that's, that's fabulous. So Mike was really a college town. Yeah, it was, it is a college town. Yeah. 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 So you referenced your siblings. Mm -hmm. um, and it does seem to me that you um, uh, you pulled on a different part of uh, of, of the brain um, than uh, than uh, a bunch of folks in the STEM disciplines. But if you hadn't worked in higher education, what other path might have you traveled down? Well, I mean, that's a, I've thought that about many many times. Uh, when I was going to college, and I decided to follow the humanities uh, road and literature. My parents at some point said, you know, shouldn't you think about becoming a lawyer? That's, you know, they, was, they were thinking of me having a successful career and, you know, doing something, considering that my siblings were two engineers, one is a physician, the other one is a computer scientist. So, <laughs> you know, you can do something more concrete. But I don't know if I would have been successful as a lawyer or not. I, I don't know. I think that, you know, I always saw myself as being part of the academic world and, I joke that I never left college, and in reality, I never did. I am I'm still, you know, in, in college and, and enjoying it. Um, when I was in college, I started working at Sears at the time in my OS. So I think I was a fairly decent salesperson. So I'm a salesperson. <laughs> that I can that I can see. So where are you in birth order? I am the middle child. <laughs> 
Ah, okay. Yeah. I'm three out of five. I'm supposed to be the problem child. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it sounds to me like you're the one that uh, you know, was connecting the, uh, the generations. Um, that's, that's, very, that's, very that's, that's the way that I see myself. I, don't have, I have to ask my siblings. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> we are a very close-knit family, so we still get together, all five of us, you know, every, every year for New Year's, one of our traditions bring together the entire family. Now, of course, extended family with the children, the, you know, and in some cases, grandchildren, so that, you know, being too important to us. I love it. Hey, if you could, you know, reflect back on your, you know, 20 years in the presidency, what do you feel most proud of having accomplished um, at either place or both? Yeah. Well, one thing that I am very proud of is that in both places, I made uh, reflecting the, the diversity of the community where we live in a priority. And uh, we certainly diversified uh, both the, the, the student population in both institutions in Kutztown and in Framingham. Uh, we also work to diversify the faculty and staff. That's, as you know, a lot more challenging and we have not been as successful. Although in Framingham, I think that we're about 20% of our faculty now reflect our, our diversity in this area. So that's something that I am really, really proud of. I think also that, you know, taking advantage of the opportunities that come up for the institution when, when they present themselves. And here in Framingham, we have had the opportunity to do in two, two kind of, I would call them acquisitions. One was a, a conference center that you that you know, yeah. conference center in Ashland that came available for us, and we just uh, managed to purchase that and incorporate that to the institution. And we are developing now a hospitality management program because we have now this wonderful conference center. Indeed. The other one was our local museum in town that was having some challenges, and we actually merged the museum into the university. So now we have a wonderful museum as well for our students in the arts. So. Those two things I am very, very proud of, as well as it's things that just were here and we took advantage of the opportunities that came up. Yeah. So diversifying the campus and, and taking, uh, taking advantage of opportunities to make the institution better. I think that that's things that I am very proud of. Extending the reach of the, of the institution. So earlier you said, you know, leadership's not about wearing a crown. Um, what if I gave you a crown even better? What if I gave you a magic wand? What would be your wish for American higher education for the coming decade? That is actually a, a really good, uh, really good question. And it's a great, great fantasy to have the magic wand that we can change things. First, the first thing that I would do is to try to, uh, to increase the economic help to all disadvantaged students. I think that both in the private and in the public sector, uh, we, we don't have enough resources to really uh, help students uh, get access to education. In the public sector, our fees are comparable, lower or, or, or easier, but still they are very expensive. We are, not, uh, we are not cheap by any means. So making education more accessible certainly- Double would. Pell Grant. Double Pell Grant, absolutely. That would help. It will not solve it, but it will help. Yeah. No, I, one clear example, I mean, the tuition and fees in my institution are about $10,000. Plus, you have to add about $10,000 for room and board if a student wants to be here. So when you add, you know, books and transportation, etc., we calculated about the cost of attendance, about $24,000. Yeah. You get Pell Grant, you double Pell Grant, and you get state support, 
you get uh, you know loans etc you still have to come up with 10 12000 dollars a year to 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 pay for our for, for your education in our public institution well the average salary uh, or the average income for our families is around 80 to 100000 dollars so now we're talking about 10% of your gross income for one child you have two or three now you're talking about 20 30% of your gross income that's that's impossible so families cannot afford that so our students and it's not only the public sector, it happens in this private sector, as you know, as well. Our students have to work. They work 20 hours, 30 hours, because yeah. they have to pay for, the, pay for their education. So helping them uh, get that education and lowering the cost of attendance to education, uh, it certainly would be my top priority with my magic wand. The second thing that I would do with that magic wand is truly get over this whole racist attitude that we have systemic racism that has existed in, in, in this nation and it's reflected in education. It comes back to our schools in ways that, that we try to, to avoid, but you know, try to educate people, try to work with them, but still once in a while, racial incidents happen. And avoiding those and becoming truly anti-racist institutions, becoming truly institutions that respect every single individual, regardless of, uh, it would be the second thing that I would do with my, my magic wand. And with those two things, I think that I would be a, a, a fabulous change in higher education overall. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you for that. You know, well, one of our traditions here is we like to close by asking our guests to share with our listeners the distinctive qualities that, you know, the organizational DNA that has uh, made Framingham such a very special place for you and to those you serve. So I'd love for you to, uh, to share with us your sensibilities about um, what makes Framingham State uh, a great institution and distinctive. I have to start with history to begin with. Uh, we are the first uh, normal school in the, in the country. We were founded in 1839 wow. as man. And I have to say, I joke that I have to say Horace Mann once a day, it's my contract. I have to- <laughs> <laughs> He, he was secretary of education at the time in Massachusetts. He went to France and he adapted the model of the Ecole Normale and brought it to the United States as normal schools. A, a word that still surprises people and sometimes they ask, what do you mean normal schools? We're teachers colleges. So he was deeply concerned about the lack of formal training for people that went to be teachers in the K-12 system. Yeah. So we started in 1839 as, the, as a normal school and we started as a women's college. He just, uh, we were a women's college until 1964. So there were, you know, something that we were training teachers. In uh, 1842, so three years after our founding, our principal uh, at the time was not president, but principal went to the board and uh, asked to accept the first African-American female to the school. And, uh, you know, he threatened to resign if the board didn't accept her. Her name was Mary Miles Bibb. She was accepted. She is the first African-American female to graduate from a teacher's college in the United States. She became a very influential person in the abolitionist movement and uh, actually moved to Canada, founded a newspaper in Canada, et cetera. So we were engaged in issues of diversity from the very, very start. During the, during the 19th century, another very distinguished alumna is Olivia Davidson, who actually worked at Tuskegee Institute. She was recruited by uh, Booker T. Washington to help him develop Tuskegee 
and the pedagogy of Tuskegee eventually ended up marrying Booker T. Washington. And so she was quite instrumental in the development of Tuskegee Academy. So again, that is a 19th century thing. So our DNA has always been that. At the same time in the 19th century, some women philanthropists in Boston wanted to have opportunities for women to get practical skills. So they decided to contribute and fund uh, a program that became what was called at the time home economics and then has evolved. And that home economics program was destined to help, to help women in particular get specific skills to get jobs outside of teaching so that they became a nutritionist, they became a, you know, a, a fashion designer, et cetera. Even today, two of our most important programs on campus are nutrition and fashion design and merchandising. And nutrition actually also evolved into food sciences. So we have food science, nutrition, fashion design, those departments that evolved from that 19th century concept. So we have always been an institution concerned about diversity, equity, inclusion, respecting everybody, and also about providing a liberal arts education, but also providing practical skills. So it has been in our DNA. So that's uh, what makes us a, a, a unique place. And today, I think that we continue those traditions. We continue to, to provide uh, practical skills with a very strong humanities background and liberal arts background and social sciences background. As a matter of fact, we just created, thanks to a, a very generous donor last year, uh, uh, the Mancuso Center for the Humanities on campus, which is actually de devoted to helping uh, students in the humanities uh, develop all the necessary skills to go out in the world of work and get significant jobs. So th this whole concept that if you study English or history, you're not going to get a job. We know that is not true. We know that this is uh, not the case. But helping students understand that and helping parents understand that, uh, I think it's really important. And is uh, again, something that goes with the long tradition that we have had in, uh, in Framingham State. Uh, I love every bit of that. Thank you so much for sharing. That is an extraordinary history to uh, to to, to draw upon and to build upon. And uh, I, I wanted to say thank you for joining us on Leaders on Leadership. We're so glad to have you and appreciate your sharing your thoughts, your insights, your wisdom. Uh, and and uh, let me um, uh, ask you to say a final word. Well, I, I just wanna say thank you to you and thanks to Academic Search and to uh, Academic Leadership Institute for uh, inviting me, it's been uh, Always, it's always a pleasure to to talk with you and to and to be with you. And uh, I certainly am uh, really uh, happy that we have been friends for twenty years. I think that it is a, a it's great to uh, to have that connection. And I know that uh, you are doing a terrific job at Academic Search, and and uh, ALI is doing a great job for future leaders of uh, of this nation. So I just want to encourage people to continue to, to follow this path of uh, academic leadership. We need more and more uh, leaders in our, in our institutions. I'll second that and just say thank you. I'm really grateful for your friendship and uh, look forward to, uh, 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 we're gonna have more adventures in the, down the road and uh, we'll try and keep uh, raising up opportunities uh, uh, to help um, American higher education be the promise um, uh, of lifting people into the middle class. I love that, uh, that image and, um, I had no idea about the, the history of home economics, but uh, uh, my parents are both um, graduates of, uh, of, of a normal school and my mother was a home economics major. So um, uh, Framingham State um, uh, helped to light her pathway. So I'm, I'm in debt to you in ways I didn't even know. So thank you so much. Thank you.
Listeners, we welcome your suggestions and thoughts for leaders we should feature in upcoming segments. You can send those suggestions to leadershippodcast at academicsearch.org. You can find our podcast on at the Academic Search website and wherever you find your podcasts. Leaders on Leadership is brought to you by Academic Search and the American Academic Leadership Institute. Together, our mission is to support colleges and universities during times of transition and through leadership development activities that serve current and future generations of leaders in the academy. Again, it's been a special joy to host Javier Savalos on our show today. Thank you again, Javier, for joining us. Be well.